0: So the topic tonight is either like really intriguing to you or you just can't imagine anything more dull and uninteresting, you know, to think about. Um, I I hope that uh, it will, in fact, uh, be something that will um, inspire you and invigorate you and ignite a passion in your heart to give your mind, your intellect, fully and completely to the Lord and to have some vision that perhaps uh, you are more than just a very complex organic computer um, that thinks, but that you could actually um, uh, collaborate with God uh, through your mind, through your intellect uh, for his glory. Um, Let's uh, pray for just a moment. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. We ask that you would rest on our minds that you would also fill our bodies with light Lord you have asked us to love you with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength and we ask that you would um, as we meditate on these great truths of scripture together that you would ignite in us that desire to love you with the whole of who we are We ask this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Um, So I'm on staff at Church of the Resurrection as the uh, community care pastor, but I also have another job. I teach at College of DuPage. And I came into this job very serendipitously. I never imagined myself as a um, religious studies teacher at a community college. Uh, My understanding of religious studies is that, like, if you want your kid to lose their faith in college, well, all you have to do is have them take a religious studies class, and that will be that. You know, you, you, you'll wreck their, wreck their faith in, like, one semester. Um, but this opportunity came to me in a very unsought-after way. And I thought, hmm, perhaps this is the Lord. Uh, I, a friend of mine who was also a part-time pastor at another church uh, was leaving to take a full-time position, and he was like, boy, it would really be great if there could be another Christian in this, uh, in this program. So this was like a couple months before I finished my like, midlife crisis master's degree, and bam, there I was teaching religious studies. Um, truth be told, perhaps this should be edited from the tape, I had never taken a course in any kind of religion except Christianity which means I had to actually educate myself about Buddhism and, Christianity and Islam and um, everything. And um, part of the conviction that I came to as a middle-aged scholar was that it's really important to be um, empathic in your scholarship if you want to understand. So for example, uh, you know, studying church history, if you want to understand um, Roman Catholicism, you, you can't look at it like as some kind of like um, evangelical critic You actually have to see it from the eyes of those who are faithful Roman Catholics who make their connection with God in that way. So you have to study empathically. And I came to believe that that's actually a great way to apprehend truth and reality. And so my job then was to actually think about the world religions in a similar way. You know, can I look at Islam through the eyes of how a Muslim would understand their faith? And then when I teach this to a class... Can I, as clearly as possible, not give my Christian critique of this religion but to actually lay it out, like this is what this group of people really believe and this is why it's meaningful to them. Um, and this might even be something that is, that is you know, beautiful or human about this religion. And what I found was that as I taught each of these religions as, just as faithfully as I could just to be true to what they actually said that I found myself so non-defensive about my Christian faith. I didn't find any need to like say, let me give you six things that are wrong with Buddhism. Actually, all I needed to do was really clearly say what Buddhism was all about, and people would be like, you're kidding? People believe that? (laughs) You know, that, that there is actually in the human being a capacity to hear truth and to make some judgment calls and some discernment calls And that ultimately, Christianity is so full of the light of reason and the beauty of truth that you can set it side by side any other worldview and it will shine with a brightness that, that overshadows any other philosophy, any other way of life. That there is something so beautifully reasonable and intellectually Consistent about Christian faith, and that's something that um, we really need to celebrate. Uh, we are in a culture where people love to like tear it apart. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about uh, new th- new atheism for just a minute. Um, you know, in reading their books, you would think that like Christians were the most medieval, like uneducated, like stupid people ever. How could anyone ever believe that? Um, but they actually are not true, they they actually lack the um, integrity of the intellect because of their rebellion against God. I'll get to that in a little bit. So my encouragement to you is that um, God has given us minds, he's given us intellects, because it's one of the ways that we apprehend what is good and true and beautiful um, in all of creation and in the inheritance of faith that we have uh, through the centuries. Just a tiny philosophy question, uh, lesson here for you. Um, in classical philosophy, the human being is called the intellectual animal. The reason for that is that in that system of thought, um, the first principle, sort of this general God um, principle, is considered pure intellect. So on the one hand, you have these intellectual creatures within the, within the system, so we're talking Plato, Aristotle, that kind of classical system, Uh, You have God, who is absolute intellect, and the angels are also intellectual beings. And then you have the animals. And they really live on the level of instinct. They're they're biological. But the human being is kind of a cross between the two. So they call the human being the intellectual animal. Um, And it's important to know that this capacity that we have as human beings for abstract thought and reason, the capacity to know and understand a reality that is transcended to ourselves, and the capacity to govern our instincts, to not merely live as animals, um, this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. This is part of the way we reflect the image of God in ourselves. And you know, the more you study, you know, comparing organisms like monkeys, you know, versus humans, people get all excited because, oh my gosh, they recognize 26, you know, like cards with bananas and apples on them. And they can, like, ask you for a banana by, like, giving you the banana card, and everybody gets all excited, right? Well, really, that level of, is so minuscule. You know, there are those bits of understanding of language that other organisms have, but it is not even remotely close to what we have as human beings. We have this, uh, this capacity uh, because we are made in the image of God. Um, The other little theological piece here is just to remember that intellect is part of our spiritual nature. Um, If you take a little tour through the book of Revelation where we have these little glimpses into what heaven is like and what people are like, they're doing all kinds of things for which you need an intellect to sing, um, to praise God with words, um, to remember. All of those things are part of our Uh, eternal nature it's part of our this spiritual human um, single entity that we have so um, it's important not to allow the world to reduce the intellect to just the brain your intellect is more than just your brain Um, your intellect has to do with the whole of who you are Uh, we're not just really advanced organic computers Um, The mind, the intellect, this capacity we have to abstract, to explore, is part of being in the image of God. Um, The bad news, of course, is that the intellect is mysteriously darkened by sin. Um, And this is just a, it's one of the many consequences of the fall. And there is a real relationship between... um, the body and the passions of the body and the freedom of the intellect. Um, Paul makes this clear uh, in Romans, the passage that you have here. uh, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Uh, Those who live in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Um, And it is this mysterious way that when um, the human being is out of sync with his, his or her creator, that the, the intellect is, is, is stunted. It doesn't actually have its full capacity, its full um, scope of possibility. Uh, from Ephesians 7, um, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So this is really profound. It means that if you have a heart hardness towards God, it will actually impact your capacity, your intellectual capacities. Um, it has a bearing on them. Um, even though there are many great minds and hearts um, who are you know, great atheistic scientists uh, and, and whatnot, there is something of the human intellect that cannot be completed without the Spirit of God. And I think we just need to consider that as like part of the gospel message. Um, in some ways, the appeal, if you have a brilliant scientist that you know, part of your prayer for them can be, Lord, please bring them into your kingdom so that all that they have to give uh, intellectually can be infused with your Holy Spirit, that they might not fall short of what they could give um, as scientists. Um, so keep, keep that in mind. Um, I had a youth pastor years ago who had this phrase that apparently has stuck with me quite well, because we're talking 30 years ago. But he said, sin makes you stupid. Okay? That's pretty simple, right? Sin makes you stupid. And of course, you know, as a youth pastor, he sees, you know, kids doing all kinds of stupid things um, that you think, aren't you smarter than that? Wouldn't you know that that's a bad idea? Um, And this is, I think, even though it's like overly simplistic, there is um, truth in this. Um, Let me mention just a couple of specifics. Really what I want to get to is the healing of the intellect, so I don't want to, like, bog down uh, in this uh, material. Um, Rebellion against God compromises the integrity of the intellect. Um, This is a pretty bold claim. I imagine that (laughs) uh, there would be people who would really strongly disagree with me on this. Um, But I think if you have intellectual um, integrity and you, for example, read A New Atheist, um, they will give you all kinds of like, logical fallacies in their debunking of Christianity. Um, they don't want you to actually have all the data. They're actually not being scientific. So they, they might, for example, give you and um, say, well, there was this war and there was this war, you know, and these were religious wars. But they don't want to mention, you know, like, all the people killed under communism. You know, they don't want to actually have you take in all the data. They want to select the data for you and then build their argument out of that, out of that fallacy. Um, they almost have to do that. Because in rebellion against God, they, have, they, they can't really scientifically, objectively help you assimilate all the information and come to a truly reasonable conclusion. Because a truly reasonable conclusion will not lead you to the kind of agreement with them that they're seeking. Uh, you get a lot more propaganda in those books than you actually get uh, a presentation of uh, fact. Um, and you'll find that really, really, really bright people will make kind of embarrassing fallacies of logic uh, because their hearts are in rebellion against God. Um, The second point is that intellectual lust uh, can compromise the stability of the intellect. Um, Concupiscence or lust is something that we usually think of as being something related to the body. Um, I have an inordinate passion about blue cheese, you know, things like that. Or we think of it related to sex or to sleeping too much or, you know, any of the things that we consider, you know, someone to be, not to have uh, self-control. But the ancient writers, and I'm thinking particularly more of, uh, medievalist uh, Thomas Aquinas, talks a lot about um, intellectual concupiscence or intellectual lust. And it has a way of um, causing the human being to get, skewed towards um, intellectual curiosity to the neglect of other aspects of life. Love, relationships, um, meaning, beauty. Um, Occasionally I've met someone who um, just can't stop consuming information. Um, And what it leads to usually is kind of a, um, you start to wonder if they like maybe need like to see a therapist Maybe they need some medication. I mean, you just have this sense of like instability in uh, in the way that they that they present because there's something out of kilter um, for them. Um, but the most common kinds of this intellectual lust um, manifest in, in in two ways. One is. Um, I can't think of a better word than just uh, foolishness. And this is the intellect that's separated from wisdom. You have to keep in mind that wisdom and intellect are two different things. Um, Wisdom is something that puts all things together and brings this practical, decisive uh, word of instruction that makes decisions based on understanding. And when um, wisdom is separated from intellect, really crazy things happen. Um, Often it's a search for some kind of esoteric, Or secret way of knowledge. Um, A classic example of this today is Scientology. Um, It's just amazing like they appear to be pretty intelligent people who fall for this and they'll spend a tremendous amount of money and then the more you look into it the more you realize we're talking aliens and you know living in your mind that need to be cleared out and all sorts of absolutely outrageous kinds of information, you know, why, why would a really normal person who is not like mentally stunted fall for that and like give away their fortunes to that? Um, it's, it has to do with this kind of uh, foolishness that comes from intellectual lust, somehow wanting to transcend the limits of our knowledge uh, in order to gain something that no one else can get. Uh, and the beautiful thing about Christian truth and reality is that it's a completely level playing field. Um, anyone um, has, has access. There are no secrets. There are no inner circles. Um, Keith was not let in on any, like, secrets of the Christian faith after he was ordained as a priest that you guys will never know about. <laughs> that doesn't happen uh, because we, we, we don't have that. We don't have a, an inner circle of secret knowledge. Um, Anytime you get into a group that has, like, you don't get to find out about it until XYZ, um, you know that you are in a group that has this quest for knowledge that has become um, um, fallen and inordinate. And I can give you a whole list of those if you're interested, but I'm not going to list them off to you. Um, One of the great things about um, teaching... COD is that my students do these um, visits to, you know, observe religion and so consequently I find out about things that you would never imagine exist. Um, Janelle's here somewhere. We were talking today about this group. It's a it's a group from Korea and um, they have a goddess worship. What's really interesting is they actually think that Jesus has come back as a woman and uh, she lives in Korea, and she's still alive now. And you can get her picture, you know, put on your wallet, and you can actually get your picture taken and send it to her so she knows what you look like. And um, they, they invite people to Bible studies. I'm not sure exactly how you read the Bible studies, you know, how you go to a Bible study and feel like this is a good religion. Um, but you can, like, if you look up, like, Mother God, Naperville, you'll find out all about it, okay? It's just, like, right down the street. Right, I don't think of this as you know this area as being like just full of gullible, stupid people, you know. And these are not just Koreans that are there; they're like very Naperville-looking people. <laughs> um, you know, you don't. This is not like all expat Koreans. These are just like your normal neighbors. Decide that they're going to get into this, um, but it promises something that nobody else has. And we need to uh, realize that when, um, when we have that lust uh, to get something special that no one else knows, we almost always end up doing something just foolish. My student who visited there, you know, like couldn't believe it, and was—they have an interesting like take on uh, Passover. They have this—they they don't do the Lord's Supper, but they do this like Passover thing. And the idea is that if you take refuge in Mother Goddess, all the troubles of your life will pass over. Okay? Really interesting kind of take on Passover. You know? So I don't know how they enact this ritually, but you know, she's watching all this. And uh, finally, uh, they get to the end of the service, and it's like, we're all gathering you know, in the front courtyard you know, to get our picture taken. Because we just want to send an updated picture to Mother Goddess so she can see us, you know. And he's like, she's like, oh, that's okay. You know, I really have another obligation. I've got to go. I don't really want my picture taken. Um, and sweet little Mother Goddess, she is not. She's like a little Korean grandma. She's so darling. She is so cute. You know, it's like, how does this happen? You know, how does this really happen? Uh, there's a need for for healing uh, in the intellect for sure. Okay. Uh, And the second, and it just has to be mentioned, um, occult ways of knowing are also um, a way that the fallen intellect sometimes expresses itself. It's the seeking to know something beyond the limits of our knowledge. In that way, there's a kind of presumption, a kind of pride that is um, present here. Um, An example of this would be um, like a seance so, you know, you're worried about your past loved one, you're missing them so much. If you could just talk to them, it would be, feel so good. And um, even Christians sometimes will invite a medium over to, like, do a little seance so that they can talk to their departed loved one that they're missing so much. You know, unfortunately, there is a limit placed on us. And uh, death is an awful thing, and there's a chasm and when our loved ones are departed from us, we have to wait to see them again uh, when we're with the Lord. We don't get to just like forget that limitation and um, seek the help of someone like a medium to help overcome that difference. If you're really interested in this, um, C.S. Lewis's uh, novel, science fiction novel, That Hideous Strength, is um, the place where he really unfolds this connection between the occult and the intellect that is not submitted to God. Um, He puts it all together there. All right. That's all the bad news. Uh, The good news is that the intellect is illumined by grace. This is part of our understanding of baptism, of formation, of confirmation, of these ongoing infillings of the Holy Spirit that we receive. Uh, Paul says to us uh, in Romans, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, and from Ephesians, as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. Um, this work of renewing the mind is a long-term project. We can't do just a little prayer for you. Everyone, please come forward to the renewing, for the renewal of the mind prayer, and we just, like, mark you with oil and your mind will be renewed. It's not going to work like that. Um, anytime we're in the presence of God, all of who we are is being um, touched and bathed by the Holy Spirit. But there are very concrete ways that God heals the intellect through um, through nature, through um, Christian imagination, through, in, through Christian intellect, through the offices of the church, through the teachings of the church, the teachings of scripture. Um, so let me um, go through um, a few of these. Um, and as I do that, I want to just emphasize that there is a very real way in which God can touch our minds. Um, The Gospel writers have a couple of instances when they talk about uh, their minds being opened to see Jesus, or their minds being opened to understand the Scripture. Um, And I think it's really important. Occasionally, um, I will meet someone who says, you know, I read the Bible, I'm a Christian, I know I want to believe it, but you know what? I can't connect, like heart to heart, I am not connecting with the Scripture. Um, I think that is something that we can pray about. Um, I often have um, talked to people who, after receiving some infilling of the Holy Spirit, some baptism of the Holy Spirit, they say, the Scriptures came alive to me. That's a gift. That's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you, like, take classes to get. It's a gift. And don't hesitate to ask for that, to ask if the Scriptures are, are not alive to you, To begin to petition the Lord for an outpouring of His Holy Spirit that your mind might be opened to understand um, the scriptures. I think you're on really solid ground uh, scripturally there and in uh, accordance with the experiences of many people. It's important that we accept the intellect as an aid rather than a hindrance to faith. Um, I I don't think we have a problem with that in this church. If anything, we're maybe a little overly intellectual. but there are places where if you like, use words that are too big or you're educated, that you're suspect of not really having serious faith. Almost like ignorance is a sign of faith. Um, and anything that is, anyone who is educated is suspect. That kind of um, anti-intellectual prejudice is deadly. It, um, it's very destructive. Um, and it doesn't do us, doesn't help those new atheists and all their arguments that they make about, against the buffoonery of Christians, for sure. Um, but it's really important that if, if you have received any of that kind of teaching where you've been taught um, that your intellect is actually getting in the way of your faith, to lay that before the Lord, to even repent of it, Um, If it's something that you have believed or you have held back um, in in seeking um, intellectual clarity because you somehow think that that is going to undermine your faith, um, it's really important to um, renounce that false teaching about the intellect. The second one I put backwards. What I meant to say was don't substitute um, um, knowledge about God for the knowledge of God. This is like the opposite problem, right? You meet someone who, like, they can give you, they can, like, recite all of, like, John Calvin's theology or all of biblical theology, uh, and they are super, super, super duper smart. And you ask them, you know, when was the last time you really felt connected to the Lord or felt his presence? And they're like, hmm. And then they give you another idea, right? Because they, they don't actually have... They haven't entered into an experiential knowledge of God. And it's really uh, important that we don't um, think that really rigorous intellectual wrestling with ideas is the same thing as having a relationship with God. Um, we, we need to not substitute one for the other. And, and there are places, um, I think especially when you're, like, when you're studying, when you're in college, graduate school, um, it's very tempting to almost get puffed up by having a lot of knowledge about God, all the while your personal relationship with God is like shrinking and getting smaller and smaller. Um, so it's very important not to confuse or confound the two. Uh, one of the ways that we can do this is simply to break down the wall between study and worship. Um, it's one of the dangers of studying um, Christian faith in a purely academic setting. Um, where you don't have uh, worship, you don't have opportunities to have an experiential encounter with God um, through the sacraments, um, through the Holy Spirit, all you have is that heady stuff. That can become a problem. Um, But we can invite Jesus. We can invite the Holy Spirit into our um, studies. Uh, Years ago at, at Wheaton College, there was this professor that I found very obnoxious. I never had her for a class, but she would always do a chapel, and she had this really like kind of, I don't know, it was kind of screechy voice, I thought. But she would be like, worship at the altar of your desk. And I'd be like, you have got to be kidding me. (laughs) You have just got to be kidding me. You know, and it took me, I was like, listen, when I am studying, I am not worshiping. These are two separate (laughs) activities. And uh, little by little, you know, that really got under my skin. There needs to be some truth in that that our love of God, our passion for him, is connected um, with um, study and worship. And then finally, and the, really the funnest thing to talk about, is baptizing the intellect. I use this, like, figuratively, right? There's not, like, a special baptism just for your intellect. Um, but this has to do with really the intellect becoming fully Christian, Um, The first has to do with humility before God and the vast nature of reality. Um, There's two ways that this is symbolized: one in Christianity and one in Judaism that I think are very meaningful. Um, If you see Orthodox Jews, uh, they wear this thing called the tefillin, and it's it's this square like box thing they have on their head, and then it kind of like wraps around their arm, and then they've got one on their arm, um, and they wear their prayer shawls. Um, What what what's up with the box on the head? Uh, the reason for that is there's a there's a portion of scripture in that little box, and the idea is that anytime you are thinking, scripture is actually over your thoughts. That we actually submit our thoughts to God and to the scripture. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know more about contemporary Judaism, and um, they laugh at themselves about how much they love to argue. They are like. It's like one of their ways of just, like, sharpening each other. They love to argue about the Bible and about theology and about tradition. Um, And it's so important for them to realize that, like, our arguments, we have to kind of take them with a grain of salt. Ultimately, we have to submit our minds to the Word of God. We can't climb over um, the Word of God to discover something that we want to know. The Christian intellect is submitted to Scripture. Uh, this is also symbolized beautifully in, in ordination. I don't know if you were at our ordination services, but the bishop like puts a Bible on our heads. It's the same symbol. That there's this submission of the intellect to God, to the creeds, to the tradition of the church. Um, and there's something so beautiful as you start to dig into um, writers that live within those bounds of scripture and tradition, they are brilliant. It's not like it's boring and uninteresting and one-dimensional. If you want to read something wacky, (laughs) find someone who wants to disregard scripture and tradition. They come up with the most outrageous things. Um, It's not all that interesting. Um, It's not life-changing. And this is critical. If you want your intellect to be healed, it starts really on your knees as you submit your intellect um, to God um, and symbolically to to Scripture. Um, The second is an acquisition of a Christian symbolic system. Um, This is very important in our more evangelical context because it's easy to just have a lot of knowledge about the Bible and a lot of knowledge about theology. But within the heart, the only symbols that the person has are like from TV and movies and whatever. Um, In order for us to really have a fully uh, dynamic and baptized intellect, the images of the heart also need to be um, changed. And fortunately, there's some fantastic um, literature, imaginative literature out there to start to fill your mind and your heart with um, great images of Christian truth and reality. I actually met someone the other day who's like 50, and she has never read Chronicles of Narnia. Guess what I am taking to her the next time I see her. I'm like, I envy you. Oh my gosh, what if there was like a Chronicle of Narnia that I hadn't read yet, and I just found out about it, and someone gave it to me as a gift? I would be like, this is the best thing that's happened to me in 10 years. It would be. I was just like... I get to introduce you to C.S. Lewis? I can't believe it! This is so awesome! And she's, she's a pretty serious, she's a very serious Christian. But she's just been in a tradition that hasn't emphasized uh, this kind of imaginative literature. It'll change your life. If you're having an intellectual kind of doubt about does God really love me or not, and you're like weighing like, the powers of good and evil in the universe or the bad things that have happened to you, And trying to weigh out, is God loving or is he really cruel? I suggest, if you haven't read it recently, pick up the Chronicles of Narnia. You'll receive, through the breath of Aslan, a revelation of the love of God. And it's something you can't get to just through um, rational thought. It's not that it's irrational, but it will order your reason around what is true and we need those um, all of that literature. If you need a list, Carol side, here she can give you an awesome list of all the literature that you could read to furnish your imagination with uh, great Christian symbols. And then my final recommendation is just that you make friends with the great Christian thinkers. Um, 20 years or more ago, um, Mark Knoll from Wheaton College wrote this really important book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Um, and part of the reason why he was so distressed about the evangelical mind is evangelicals were only reading evangelical, other evangelical writers. They had lost track of even, even the reformers were too far distant in the past, and they certainly were not reading patristics or uh, the medievalists. Fortunately, that has been changing around. Um, But if for some reason you're in a setting where you're like, you know, Christianity is just not intellectually vigorous enough for me. Listen, you just just haven't looked far enough. It's there. You'll never tap the bottom of it. Um, I got into uh, Thomas Aquinas like 10 years ago. And I realized, if I read Thomas Aquinas every day for the rest of my life, I wouldn't finish what he wrote. I don't know how he wrote all that stuff. Um, apparently, he had a scribe that followed him around and like jotted down all of his wisdom. I don't know how he did it. Like I can't even read that much, much less ever be able to write it. But our tradition, our Anglican tradition, embraces all that is Roman, all that is Orthodox. It's all ours. We don't have to limit ourselves to things that have been written since 1850. It's all ours. The, the patriarchs are ours. Um, the church fathers are ours. They are all ours. Um, don't let anyone make you feel like Christian intellectuals are like weak-minded or small-minded. Uh, the great minds and hearts that have been given to us through tradition and the beautiful, thoughtful people that are even writing today, it's endless. It's a huge treasure. And as much as you're able, set your heart and your mind to become one whose intellect is beautiful and shining uh, with the presence and the power of God.